gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then. Well, then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine and, and I'm fine. I agree with you. It's great to be fine. It's a Hello and welcome to episode 21, the review segment. It's Fighting in the War Room. Uh, we are back with a review of The Amazing Spider-Man 2. Two. Two. Whoa, whoa, I was getting there. You gotta have the dramatic pause for, for emphasis. Um, I am also here. Yes, we have a whole a whole crew here with the, the, the Sinister Four with us today um, because <laughs> Katie is off at her wedding and David would only read the Wikipedia page for Amazing Spider-Man 2. He refused to see this film, so please give him shit. Um, but with us is is Dave, who is the you know known Spider-Man fan here. Well, at least I'm most comfortable. My chair in the war room has an ass groove in it, so that, that makes me... <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I am the biggest Spider-Man fan that we brought with us today. No, actually, we went searching for Spider-Man fans, or at least we knew of Spider-Man fans and, and picked them, plucked them off the internet to join us. Uh, with us today is Sean O'Connell, the movie content director of Cinema Blend. Am I getting that right, Sean? That is correct, Okay, yes, and, and, and contributor to Fandango, Washington Post, all sorts of things. You do it all. Yes. As well as love as well as love Spider-Man. I think, yeah, the last time you were with us, we were yammering on about Spider-Man. I have to basically wait for a Spider-Man movie to get released to get invited back. <laughs> no. <laughs> Next time it will be an art film. Definitely. Good. I mean, there's gonna be more Spider-Man films too. Oh, so yeah. it's not, you know. <laughs> we'll see you in two years. Yeah. Um, and we also have Matt Singer, who is the news director of the Dissolve and co-host of the Far Superior Podcast, Film Spotting SVU. Matt Thank you. My pleasure. And you, you have a history with Spider-Man. You love Spider-Man. I do. I do indeed. Was one of my favorite, my, my, one of my first words, rather, as a kid. Really? Who documented yes. that? My parents. They, 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 they tell me that. I remember it very well. No, my parents <laughs> say that one of my very first words, along with mom and dad and Bob Barker, was Spider-Man. Bob or as Barker. I called him at, yes, Bob Barker was another one. But uh, apparently I called him Meme. That was Spider-Man, but it was. Oh, that I don't know if that counts. (laughs) (laughs) Close enough. Referring to, I was referring to Spider-Man. Okay, okay, (laughs) you had the love then. So if I call him Meme during this review, you'll know who I'm talking about. (laughs) Well, and now we know that your Meh Meme Two title is a huge inside joke for your review, right? Zing, zing, zing. Uh, Let's not get too far ahead in opinion, Dave. Why don't you tell us a little about what the hell is going on in the gargantuan chaos of the Amazing Spider-Man Two? There is a lot of movie in this movie, Um, and there is. I can barely remember the first one, which I saw with Matt Singer, and his (laughs) his head was in his palms at that point. He was weeping (laughs) after Amazing Spider-Man One, and so was I. I hate that film. I really do not, and I know Sean really loves the hell out of making Spider-Man 1, so we're already coming at this. We're already butting heads here, so... We haven't even talked about Amazing Spider-Man 2. It's true. It picks up uh, with a flashback to Peter's parents, and then that sort of bridges us into a couple of flashbacks that we saw directly in the first film. Um, Peter's parents are running from Oscorp, as we sort of got an idea in Amazing Spider-Man. Um, except this time we get to see that Oscorp is also trying to hunt them down. The plane crashes. We jump forward to right after Amazing Spider-Man 1. Peter is full Spider-Man mode. He's having a ball. 
He's uh, stopping crime while and making it just in time to his own graduation where Gwen Stacy's valedictorian and everything's great if he could stop seeing Dennis Leary, who pops up in very, very tiny cameos to remind Spider-Man that he promised at the end of Amazing Spider-Man he had to stay away from Gwen. So he decides that maybe he's going to break up with Gwen and he does and they spend the rest of the movie sort of uh, figuring out how their relationship's defined. Meanwhile... I'm one through of maybe three plots through here. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, Peter's friend, Harry Osborne, played by Dane DeHaan uh, in the James Franco role, if we're talking about that previous series, uh, is back from boarding school. Hogwarts, uh, I believe. Yeah, Hogwarts. Yeah. Possibly. He, we don't know where. What A lot of franchise was. building here. Or crossover. I think from Chronicle High or something <laughs> like that. He's back because uh, Norman Osborn, the owner of Oscorp, is dying. And so he comes back to pay his respects and he and Peter sort of reconnect. And um, this guy named Max Dillon, played by Jamie Foxx, is doing the Edward Nigma storyline from Batman Forever and turns into Electro. Is that and how it's said? Is that is that how it's said? The uh, Edward Electro. Electro. <laughs> 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 Got to put that comic book uh, flair into it. If I could control when Skype would make me sound choppy and digital, I could do the electro voice maybe, but I'm not going to shoot for that. Anyway, Peter Parker learns that it's hard to balance being Peter Parker and Spider-Man, and yeah, havoc ensues. Uh, Do we need more? No, I think that's pretty much the plot of every Spider-Man story. Sean, you love this film, right? I mean, you had to love this film, but you also genuinely, authentically loved this film. I genuinely, authentically love it. Um, I love so many of the decisions that Webb continues to make, and I recognize that he is being saddled with the unfortunate, you know, you have to build a franchise. And so I found that he had the right amount of world building. I didn't think it was too much, um, but I do sort of acknowledge the fact that that all of these new series, it, it's very hard for them to just focus on the story at hand they all sort of have to keep building. And it's a problem I have with the Marvel Cinematic Universe with all of these films. It's that they don't really stand alone perfectly just on their own because they all know something else is coming. It, that was never the case. When you did a sequel, you you didn't know that there was going to be a third and a fourth. And now all of these worlds sort of have to build. But 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 even in that, even knowing all that, I think that Webb made so many great decisions. I love that he Right off the bat, I'm glad that he started with the parents and tied back into that really awkward hide-and-seek scene from the first movie, which was weird and structured poorly. And then all of a sudden, it, it kind of made a little bit more sense. So it's almost like he was addressing that. And then I always said I wanted to see a Spider-Man movie that began with a, just a robust action sequence with a villain who maybe you didn't need later, but all the Rhino is going to be a part of it. But I thought the pacing of that opening action sequence was just a perfect way to start. And then we sort of settled into all the various subplots that Dave spelled out. But, you know, I liked so many of the decisions that Webb was making throughout it. And I thought that even though he was saddled with a lot of, hey, you have to get us not only from point A to B, C, D, E, and F, I thought he did a really good job of getting to almost all of them. And just to be clear, the scene that you're referring to in the beginning is the scene with Paul Giamatti's Rhino, or he's just a Russian gangster in the beginning of this film. Right, Um, right. And although he appears all over the marking material, is pretty much kind of a bookend character. He's just the Bond villain you beat up right away in the beginning of the movie and never see again. He's pretty inconsequential. But, but as a Spider-Man fan, as someone who loves the character, uh, I, I 
do not think that we've seen him portrayed better in an action standpoint as we have in this film. That action scene and all the action scenes, they have the humor that you're looking for. The juggling, the, the juggling of canisters. Dude, all of it. All of that <laughs> stuff just worked better for me. I thought Webb improved greatly either as an action director or he just got better people to work with him on this. The money is on the screen in the action sequences. I would completely agree with you, but I don't think Matt Singer would. Matt, what did you think of The Amazing Spider-Man 2 in a general sense? Well, actually, I, I would agree about Spider-Man uh, and about the way he looks and moves and the action. Uh, I thought all of that was actually really fun and probably the best thing about the movie. And I'm kind of an easy lay for Spider-Man, like a lot of the people on this uh, <clears throat> on this review. Like, you know, it doesn't take much for Spider-Man himself to make me happy in these movies. Like, it's... Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's, uh, I can, I can just sit back and kind of enjoy the kind of aesthetic beauty <laughs> essentially of the way that he moves and swings and does lots of stuff. And, and I think by that measure, this film is, is far, far superior to the last one. And I did enjoy a lot of the action scenes with, with Spider-Man specifically. I, I thought as a Spider-Man experience, if that's all you care about, you're going to you're going to be fairly satisfied. I don't know that he always looks all that real and tactile and um there are a couple of scenes where they're going back and forth between like real people like in that first scene uh there's like, you know, gangsters or goons or whatever who are just like <laughs> real Both. people and yeah, they're gangster goons yeah. and and uh <laughs> you're cutting back and forth between the very obviously CGI Spider-Man and the very obviously real gangster goons and 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 I think the less that they have to go back and forth like that, the better, because uh, I don't think he looks particularly real. But honestly, I really don't care all that much about that. Uh, I just kind of enjoy watching him swing and flip around and catch a car and midair and then land on his feet and hold it in the air like that kind of stuff. Just, you know, that's really uh, that hits a sweet spot for me of, of Spider-Man nerdiness. What I didn't really like all that much was uh, the story and really like the screenplay. I just felt like the writing in this movie was absolutely uh, kind of dreadful at times. And I'm not a particular nitpicker of movies. At least I don't think that I am. But this movie really made me feel like one. Like I kept sitting there going, this doesn't make any sense. And why is this happening? And this is really dumb. And I can't believe the dialogue. And I just basically anytime it wasn't, you know, Spider-Man doing cool stuff and it wasn't Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone together doing their shtick which i think is really great and they have a lot of chemistry together pretty much anything else other than that in the movie i i found pretty frustrating and and disappointing i i wanted to jump on your your point about the action in this film and kind of going full cg the weird thing about amazing spider-man one is that mark webb shot a lot of it practically and it shows in that movie like it looks like someone in a suit is slinging web and flying through the air underneath a bridge or across buildings like it looks more realistic because it was they really shot it um i prefer the all cg kind of stuff here i think it becomes much more splash pagey and wild and crazy and the way that it cuts to actual people you know in close-up or in okay we just fought electro and now uh, gwen and peter parker are gonna have a moment uh, I think that stuff really plays well, and uh, the whole movie is kind of this balance between totally unrealistic and these sensitive moments, and the way that it swings back and forth between those, I think you kind of have to own that. So by going pure CG, I, I think that after the movie, I was totally drunk and telling you that I thought it was like 
Roger Rabbit in a way where I almost believe you it did because say that. yes, <laughs> where by having the cartoonery and having something that's so unrealistic matched with pure realism that I'm more on board than this kind of strange hybrid that the first movie attempted to do. Like the scene where, and we've seen it in the trailers, um, Spider-Man is fighting Electro and it's just huge amounts of blues and reds and slow motion. It's just absolute madness. I think that stuff really plays because Mark Webb is freezing it and it looks like a comic book panel at times, and it's just pushing the visual elements as much as possible. And especially after, you know, this run of Marvel movie universe movies where um, everything kind of looks the same. It has to. It can't really have a personality. It all has to mesh together. I was really taken by Mark Webb just going ballistic with the visuals. Well, really and colorful and really just, it, I mean... Calling it music video ish is is unfair at this point. It's such a reductive term, but I mean, it did. He just played with every element he could possibly crank up the knob. Can I comment on that just yeah. for a second? Um, to that point, like there are sequences in this movie that are gonna that stand out to me, and that I'm going to remember. And I, I'm with Matt Singer. The, so many Matts. <laughs> I'm with Matt to the point that you know there there are problems that you could nitpick to it too, but. Unlike other blockbusters that we've contended with lately, there are standout sequences that I'm going to remember from this movie. The Times Square sequence, um, the Gwen Stacy stuff that we'll get into, they, they are memorable set pieces that I don't think big movies like the Marvel films, um, that Star Trek Into Darkness, that any of the Transformer films, um, you know, I get a week out of those movies, uh, like a week away from those movies, and I've completely forgotten what I've watched. And I think you're right by those bold choices that Webb made in his action sequences. Um, they're going to be things that are going to linger with an audience, I think, and especially with Spider-Man fans. And so I admire it for that reason. Yeah, he chases he chases frames in this movie more than just bombast. You know, like the end of Transformers: Dark of the Moon is just about destruction and seeing all these elements move at once. Whereas Mark Webb is is definitely going for where can I put Spider Man in this frame? Where can I put Electro in this frame? How can their two powers clash? And like, what is the still frame that I'm centering this around? It can be beautiful. Sorry, Dave. Oh, I was just gonna say I think I. Agree agree with most things that have been said even if they seem contradictory but for me it was like reading three issues of a comic book but somebody else was turning the pages and as soon as I like got to that Times Square sequence and saw that the movie was capable of taking like these ideas that were sort of weak but melding it with like a score that's going for broke and lighting that's going for broke and like the spider sense being essentially bullet time which is like a go for broke moment because where they unveil it it's just like they were going to commit to these sequences and use these very simple Spider-Man ideas. And sort of after the Times Square sequence, I got to reorient in my mind that this movie is for 10-year-olds that, you know, maybe don't want to have to watch Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. to see Captain America 2. <laughs> and that I sort of understood is if we're, you know, raising a generation of people to not know what an ending is and to wait through the entire credits because there might be more story, not because it's just a list of people who worked on the films, then it's like, I'm not going to say I forgive the plot. I just stopped thinking of it as a movie and allowed myself to embrace the parts of the character that I like. Don't, don't let me forget that point you just made about 10 year olds having this movie to enjoy, because I, I kind of agree with you, but once we get to spoilers, I want to bring that back. Um, I, I want to uh, posit to all of you, 
about the plot of this movie, which I didn't find that incoherent, and things like Jamie Foxx as How Electro. How do you think genetics work, Patches? <laughs> <laughs> Good thing I have Peter's dad to tell me. No, there are, there are deviations in this plot that don't make a lot of sense, or they pretty much go nowhere, and they're still kind of boring. All the parent stuff really doesn't work, and it's extravagant in the wrong ways, or ludicrous in the wrong ways. But I do think that um, this kind of broadly painted story, it gets away with it. Um, I've seen a lot of people complain about Jamie Foxx's Electro, someone I really liked in this movie, who's he's growling and he's acting like a zany character, and he has one kind of personality quirk uh, that we see demonstrated over and over again in the first act of this film, and then is just kind of stretched to maximum uh, length. As he becomes Electro, as he becomes a, just a villain, a comic book villain, too, that we I don't know why. Why, when I'm reading a comic book, can I get away with someone who has such kind of broad motivation and broad ambition? The, uh, Electro just wants to be a god and he has these powers. He's just like zapping everything. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's just a big menace. And wh why does that not play in this movie for you guys? Perhaps it does work for me, but it uh it works for me in the comics, and it works for me in this movie, but it doesn't seem to be working for people. I think what didn't work for me wasn't that he was uh, cartoonishly evil so much as he starts out as uh, this, you know, this guy who is supposed to be like a misunderstood misfit, and literally in the course of a single scene, uh, you know, transforms uh, uh, after he's already literally transformed. He like transforms from like you know stop you don't know what you're doing to i'm going to kill everyone you know that and that happens as well with the dane dehan harry osborne character it's that they they rush through their transformations uh so quickly that it just seems uh it just i, I really like lost the characters uh, and i was kind of struggling with the characters to begin with and um i i just got a little frustrated with how quickly um, they made that kind of switch from, you know, the, the guy we're supposed to feel sympathy for to the guy that we're supposed to be terrified of because suddenly he's pure and, uh, you know, like unshadowed evil, just 100% evil. And I think just, uh, the, the problem I had too, and I get what you're saying about, you know, in comic books, people do that all the time. And I have read my share of comic books and it, it hasn't bothered me when they do that, but I think the, the, the clash here. Uh, not just within each character where they seem to be one thing and then they immediately flip to another when the, the, the screen, you know, they run out of time and they have to rush through it is that the stuff with um, Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone is not like that at all. It's not broad. It's, it's, it's kind of nuanced. It's, it's, it almost feels unscripted and natural to me. You know, there were moments where I almost felt like this was like a, a superhero mumblecore movie or something, the way that they're, kind of going back and forth in a very charming and kind of unforced way. And I just didn't find that the, their scenes really went well with big cartoonish over the top. I will destroy you all. I crave more power evil. They just didn't seem to go very well together. You know, it was like, like uh, half of the movie was a mumblecore movie and half of the movie was a Joel Schumacher Batman film. And I just, <laughs> I just didn't think that those two really fit together I all think, that well. I think the movie relies a little too heavily on the first film for that stuff. You wish more that, that um, Peter Parker and Gwen had more material in the beginning of the movie. Um, what happens to them, they kind of fall apart and they go their separate ways and they have to come back and that's the thrust of the movie. That doesn't really work as well. You wish they could spend time together, have this kind of like Nick and Nora relationship. It's so wonderful and funny. 
Yeah, I guess there's sort of a feeling, I don't know, this, I could definitely see why the script leaves a lot to be desired, because for me, it seems like the characters are all there in the point, the way they are in the comics, but the only two characters that seem like they're in each other's story are Peter and Gwen, which is really weird because Gwen Stacy, the comic book character, is kind of miserable if you go back and read her originally. And then all these other characters that have been like complicated more and more as the comics have gone on are sort of going back to just a very basic I hate Spider-Man. But it's there is a sort of uh, Jekyll and Hyde way to interpreting who this Spider-Man's going to be. And it's like you could sort of get away with it if you think Electro's fun. And I think you could definitely get away with it if you like Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone but like stuff like Dane DeHaan's just sort of gets isolated and it isn't until he's in actual plot jeopardy, which we know he's going to get out of because we know where he's going to end up. He actually hums he the jeopardy like, theme. It's funny yeah. that you say that. Well, I was going to say that yeah. he starts connecting with people like when he goes and makes a plea to Electro for the eventual uniting that's teased on the posters. That was the first time I felt like Electro was a character because he's being manipulated. But Jamie Foxx's electrified CG performance somehow had one little crack in it when he asks if someone actually needs him. And for me, that's like the only time that any character that isn't like connects with somebody that isn't Spider-Man. All these other characters are sort of floating around depressed Peter Parker. The weird part is at like 144 minutes, the movie is really a Harry Osborn movie about like him going from point A to point B to point C. And then all of a sudden it's like a King Kong movie happening in the background where Spider-Man is just fighting some guy until this other character realizes his potential. Um, It's weird, because Dane DeHaan is playing really, really bad and awful from the beginning. So when we meet him, we don't really understand why he's such a weirdo. Um, And yet he kind of blossoms into this personality he's been given for the sake of, we have to move quickly throughout this plot. And I do think that's a mistake, and it didn't work for me in the beginning of the movie. Like, it's very strange that Harry Osborn shows up and it's like, Peter, how are you? It's been 11 years. You know, we're bros. But we're still best friends. Well, yeah, well, how are you guys? You don't even know what each other looks like. What? What's? Are you Facebook friends or something? What's happening there? Um, and then well, yet, by, by like the turn of the movie in this kind of second half, because he's just been this personality, I believe his change. I believe the sadistic side of him. Uh, and it's almost like forsaking the beginning of the movie making any sense so that the latter half really works. And kind of that's what sticks with me when I walk out of the theater. It's a weird way of making a movie, I would agree. But um, he he's um, so like Nick Cage in this movie. I just enjoy him, you know, gun-toting, crazy man personality. I really got into that. Chai? I don't want to be the one who has to defend the Kurtzman and Ortsy screenplay. Um, I think but, you yeah. are going to be that person. <laughs> All right. I, I feel like I'm going to be that person. I, I've been lucky enough to see the film twice, and I really paid attention to it the second time because I was hearing a lot of the criticisms that people are bringing up, that the that the transformations are forced and that they didn't buy the villain. And listen, I, I if you didn't, I get it. If it if it felt forced to you, it's hard to it's hard to turn around and say to somebody, no, it didn't feel forced to you because maybe it did. But I I, I really do have to give them a lot of credit that they I thought they laid a lot of the groundwork for each of the characters. I mean, neither of them are good people. When I'm talking about Electro, and I'm talking about Harry Osborn. I mean, 
Max Dillon is a sociopath. He's a self-absorbed sociopath who can't have a conversation with anybody, you know, unless it's about himself, his birthday party. Um, you know, someone remembers his name and it and it lights up his entire day. So the the narrative or the motivation for him to to and I thought that the interaction in Times Square with Spider-Man, where Spider-Man's trying to talk him down and he's about to go with him, um, feeds into this whole thing where that they that they build with all of their characters of you know, Peter is the catalyst for the creation of all of these villains. And it's the attention now for, for Max it's the attention that, that he wants Spider-Man to give him. And, and for a minute, Spider-Man almost does. Um, and then it sort of sways when the crowd starts cheering for Spider-Man and, and he becomes enraged. Now maybe it was fast, but I think that they went above and beyond what most blockbusters do in terms of at least trying to put that stuff in there instead of just having, hey, there's a blue electric guy and he's in Times Square and Spider-Man has to fight him. I think Webb and, and yes, the screenwriters go a little bit further to try and establish some sort of personality dysfunction with that character. Same thing with Harry. When we first meet him, it, you're seeing him with Norman, with his father, and you get this whole conversation about, you banished me, you know, uh, you forgot me. I got scotch for my birthday from you and it had a card that said compliments of Norman Osborn. I mean, what kid would not he, want that, by the way? I was well, confused by his problem. With that <laughs> yeah, that's that awesome. Like, that's great great dad. <laughs> so, I mean, he's a, he's an arrogant prick. And so, you know, right. when people are like, oh, he changed too fast. No, he didn't. I mean, he, and I even think there were some scenes in there that they, that they included that, that pad the length of the film with, with this whole Spider-Man, can I have your blood type thing, which I oh. think only exists for... <laughs> Peter to again be blamed for, you know, if he could have helped Harry earlier, maybe he would have prevented the goblin and maybe he would have prevented what eventually happens. Matt, okay, did you but just that, that okay. whole, Yeah, I did. But that whole this this whole uh, scenario you're discussing that you that you liked about, uh, you know, Norman and Harry having these conversations, uh, it, it, it all involves this genetic disease that is passed down and that you know i don't want to spoil too much but that ultimately like this is like kind of like a death sentence hanging over harry osborne's head but it's like a death sentence that like oh you're gonna die at 65 instead of at 80 you know and he treats it like he's gonna die the next week (laughs) and and it becomes this huge thing but then he also waffles like you said he he's introduced kind of yelling at his father and then he when he first meets peter he has this sort of very like kind of cold reaction to him but then they hug and then they're skipping rocks in the east river that's which, a sign of friendship we know yeah. as new yorkers we all know that that is you know a, and, a sign. <laughs> and they're having these conversations and and peter says things like uh you know like you were there for me when my parents died which you know is like again something like eight years ago and they haven't seen each other since and it's just like what how could a 10 year old be there for someone as a 10 year old and <laughs> and make this kind of impact on someone's life that they don't see each other for eight years but you were there for me, bro, kind of a thing. It just – and then the whole Mishigas with the blood, which is another plot point that doesn't make any sense because it all hinges around Peter Parker t- knowing Spider-Man and because he takes pictures of him, which is something we never see him do in A very movie. big throwaway. I will, I will admit that. That's like almost oh, praying – that's almost preying on your knowledge of the Raimi trilogy. Right. Well, that's what I'm. That's what was going to be my larger point. Was I think that everything with that Harry character is really kind of uh, using, uh, 
you know, the pre-existing movies and the pre-existing stuff to like shortcut any sort of interesting or, you know, nuanced storytelling and just rush you through this character arc so that when they say like you were there for me, Harry, that's not this particular Harry Osborne. That's the Harry Osborne of the comics or the James Franco Harry Osborne. And yeah, if you've read all the comics and you've seen all the movies, which I certainly have, I mean, whatever, you get it. But I just that's what I found frustrating was that sort of stuff was, you know, just kind of uh, you'll get it. You know what we're talking about. We don't need to actually, you know, like go through this stuff. You you get it right. You know what we're talking no, about. But that they, begs a very that's... interesting question about who these movies exist for and who they're made for. I mean, if you're if you're a brand new person coming to Spider-Man to the point where you don't even know who Peter Parker and Spider-Man are, you, you're never going to catch up with this movie. That's really but fascinating because was, we thought it was, it was for 10 year olds. No, I think yeah. Dave, Dave said I, I it was did. for 10 year olds. No, see, I, but, I guess uh, as a way to transition slowly into spoilers, I think the great contribution that Amazing Spider Man and Amazing Spider Man 2 have to the five Spider Man movies and ongoing into the Spidey verse <laughs> is that they're still essentially about Spider Man. Like, I think the greatest thing that Mark Webb's done is. You end each movie knowing that with great power comes great responsibility, but no one's ever told Peter that, and no one says that line out loud. So if there's just a pure thrust of putting a character that's recognizably a Spider-Man that I like and that I think a lot of people are going to engage with, that totally happens. I don't know if it's it's like completely separate from something like Marvel where... I start judging them on them slotting their very, you know, functional, uh, profitable movies into this giant story puzzle. And, you know, that's the sort of thing where I'm going to get super nitpicky. But here it's just archetype ping pong. And I love it because it doesn't take itself much more seriously than that up right. until the climax, which I think is also whoa, a left. Whoa, whoa. I think, it's, yeah, right. We'll, right. we'll sound the gong. I will say that I feel like. Harry Osborne is pretty much defined by his haircut, and that oh, might yeah. be okay in some movies. Like maybe his hairstylist deserves the best actor oh, award Oscar this year. But <laughs> you're saying before before he you know transforms or after both or, both haircuts both? aren't they the same haircut? Well, after he transforms, <laughs> he has like flock of seagulls. But before oh, we know he he's so going to be evil. He's, he's so ridiculous. He's very emo. He's he's from some emo band I can't name. Uh, but more ridiculous than Willem Dafoe because I'd say no. Yeah, no, but but that, that was the ridiculous goblin. He's the only he's the ah. only person functioning in that movie. It's it's slightly different because of the scale. I think it's hard to. I mean, I I'm I'm kind of with you, Sean. I I believe that these characters are evolving at the pace of this movie and are jumping back and forth. And I'm like buying it all. And I do think it rests on the foundation of everything we know. Like this isn't a Spider-Man reboot. It's continuing. On the it's piggybacking off Raimi's movies, and it really does so here. Uh, if you are a ten-year-old, you are going to be lost. I do want to sound our our uh, spoiler gong, which you will not hear, guys, but it will it will sound. And I want to talk about some of the more spoilery things. So if you have not seen this movie, go see it or or just skip this part. Uh, and we'll be back in a second. Where to begin? Let's Sean talk about this. Sean, Sean and I have been debating whether or not this is going to happen in this movie, and I think Sean is a great person uh, to talk according about. According to everybody who worked on the movie, the death of Gwen Stacy was something that – that's the reason they're making these movies. It's the reason they put 
Gwen Stacy in these movies. They wanted the killer. They wanted that emotional beat. Does it work? Does it make the whole movie work? And Sean, you may have some thinking here. Oh, I, I have a lot of thinking. Um, it's part of the reason why I will defend this movie as hard as I probably will. Because with its faults, it's really funny. Like, And it's even said on this podcast. Matt's like, and other people have said, well, the Spidey action is great. And the Peter and Gwen stuff, anytime Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone are in it, fantastic. Well, it's 80% of the movie, you know? So we nitpick villains, and these movies often have villain problems, not just Spider-Man, but all of them do. But the fact that this movie got the Gwen Stacy, the sequence, the death of Gwen Stacy, which is something I've been waiting for since Sam Raimi first put Mary Jane, head-scratchingly, on top of a bridge and had her knocked off with the goblin. Um, I, I mean, that's part of the reason why I have always disliked the Raimi films, um, because he just he picked and chose things that he liked but applied them to the wrong characters, and then it, it, it set the mythology off on the wrong step from the very get-go. So by the time you finally got Gwen Stacy in the in the third Raimi film, it was comically bad. I mean, it was just, it was so poorly done. But I don't want to compare the Raimi films to this. I, I think that Webb, when he first introduced Gwen Stacy, and it was like, this was a true reboot. We're finally going to get to see Gwen's story play out. And then they didn't use Green Goblin in the first movie. And I thought, well, fantastic. They really can build it. And that's what you kind of needed to do. You needed to use a first movie to establish the Peter-Gwen relationship. And, and the Webb films, the backbone of them clearly is the peter and gwen storyline i'm never going to get over you, the fact that they're called the web films but uh, it's, go on. <laughs> it's kismet it's kismet um and then she needed to die i mean essentially she needed to die it was part of the i i think that that Raimi always missed that opportunity um he he never gave that peter after the death of uncle ben you know something really tragic that broke the spirit of the hero and 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 gave it it's not i don't want to say the empire strikes back ending because it's not that and in fact, by the end of this one, he, I almost think if, if Webb has made a bad choice, he's allowed Peter to almost resolve the Gwen Stacy thing a little bit too soon. Although the cemetery montage after her death to me I agree. is again, another example of, yeah, another example of just a really great visual sequence in a, in a superhero movie that I didn't expect. It's, that's, a, that's one of the most emotional scenes that I've seen in a film, in any film this year. And I thought it was a great choice by him. But so the first time I saw the Gwen Stacy death in this film, I know it's coming. Uh, I've analyzed every piece of trailer and clip, and I've gone back and forth with Dave on Twitter, and we're discussing, you know, is it, it, they show Emma hanging from the web. Is it a tease? And then there's this whole time motif that Mark Webb has built into this thing. It starts with the gears of his father's watch, and everybody talks about if I only had more time. And this is built into the mythology of Peter Parker. It's built into the mythology of Spider-Man. If he only had five more minutes at these pivotal moments in his turning point he might have stopped the criminal who was going to kill uncle ben he might have been able to catch gwen stacy when she was falling off the bridge and in this one we literally see spider-man with his feet trying to stop the gears of a clock trying to stop time and he can't he doesn't and she dies and we know it's going to happen and i thought the way that they filmed it the way that they staged it I thought it had the emotional impact that I've been waiting to see in a Spider-Man film. And because they nailed it, in my opinion, because they nailed it, that this film is going to sit on a pedestal because they finally got 
the Gwen Stacy story that personally, as a fan, I've been waiting to see and waiting to see done right. That when she hits the ground, when they slow, just the slowing down of the web as it's weaving through the clock. It becomes a hand. It becomes a hand. It's pretty awesome. Now, Matt, you cringe, but dude, I'm telling you. I'm not cringing. No, no, I I heard singer. I heard singer. Sorry, I'm Patrick. I actually did. I thought in that moment. Oh my God! Maybe he's going to say like I felt everything that you're supposed to feel when like he's going to save her. He's actually going to stop her, and then she does. He doesn't, and and to me, that worked extremely well. It and it like a, like a big eraser just wiped away any kind of little problems I might have had building up to it because that was handled so well. And then to get to the end with the the scene with the little boy and that kid trying to say you know all of that, all of that worked. But for for me, focusing on Gwen Stacy, <laughs> that sequence was. Perfect. Matt, why are you cringing? Why are you cringing? Well, first off, I, I I do want to say that I don't know if eighty percent of this movie is Peter and Gwen. I just, no, I think there are very, serious stretches well, no, no, of this no, movie no. where they I'm disappear. I'm saying if it's if the people say, oh, the action is great, oh, okay. and also the Peter Gwen stuff is great, you know, then I think it's like twenty twenty five percent of the stuff that isn't that doesn't fall into action or right. There's a long stretch of time in the middle stuff. of this movie after that Times Square sequence. Where the, the Peter and Gwen aren't together, and there isn't a big action scene until the end of the movie. That's a little. That's pretty rough. There's a lot of stuff with the with the parents and the going into the subway. And <laughs> you didn't like when the a, subway, a subway car car comes out of the ground <laughs> for no reason, and there's a yeah, track there's there a, for a reason. Come on, right? I don't think it's worth quibbling over the percentage, but I think it's a little less than twenty percent yeah, of the movie. That's fine. That's fine. Uh, I, I actually did think that the sequence itself with Peter and Gwen and and uh, the Green Goblin, although I, I don't think he's ever called that. But that sequence, I thought, again, I, I would agree that it was very effectively done. I think thought it was well shot and paced, and it was very suspenseful. I think regardless of whether you know what's going to happen or not, it's effective. I think it, it actually, in that case, it may be more effective if you've read the comics because probably – uh, it's more suspenseful uh, to somebody who hasn't read the comics. Maybe it'll be a surprise because generally these kinds of movies don't uh, kill off major characters. So that uh, it's going to be an interesting divide, I think, between people who are more familiar and who aren't more familiar. Uh, for me, the problems were sort of the incredibly awkward uh, machinations, again, of the screenplay to force that scene into the movie where they've spent most of the movie apart and Gwen Stacy is going to Oxford and she gets into Oxford and then that very moment decides she's going to fly to Oxford. And so she immediately <laughs> goes from her exam to the airport without luggage or saying goodbye to her family or anyone. She may have had luggage and in the cab that she's in. She just abandons <laughs> well, it no. on the FDR. She abandons it. Okay, sure. And then and 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 uh, just can you know conveniently, you know, happens to be in the right place for uh, Peter to do that. Admittedly, very kind of uh, charming gesture uh, where he creates this this you know big sign out of webs for her. But just like the awkwardness of that uh, sequence and and all of the different things that they do to. You know, I just don't understand. You know, I, I agreed. I'm, I think it was Dave who said that, you know, the original Gwen Stacy character in the comic books is very different. And, and you know, actually the Emma Stone version of her is a lot more interesting and lively. Um, but I just in this movie, I, there's times where I was like, who is this girl? Because she's, you know, like a recent high school graduate 
who's who's still applying to colleges after she's graduated and is also seemingly a mid-level executive at Oscorp <laughs> and has like an intimate knowledge of the electrical grid of the entire city and it just is just a lot of that stuff where I, I you know like I said I don't generally find myself dwelling on that stuff but in this movie you know when I wasn't kind of taken away by the action and and some of those uh, very memorable moments, which mostly come from the source material. I just found myself shaking my head at a yeah. lot of the stuff that was going on. I think it's a testament to Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone's chemistry in this movie. Like, they don't have that many scenes, but each one of them seems to really work wonders. And oh, I can get away with, like, Gwen Stacy being a mid-level executive at Oscorp. Remember, she's she's competing against, like, a 10-year-old who's going to Oxford. Uh, so there are <laughs> smarter right. people than... Be, she only beat a 10-year-old. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so there are definitely smart people out there, um, but I, I and can... there isn't there is an emo music montage between like she didn't go from that interview to the cab like in between after he leaves her at the interview that's when Peter goes home oh he makes his memory in, wall here's the montage <laughs> yeah breaks the calculator finds the coins goes to Roosevelt so you're well, assuming that several he, days have passed I don't think he, he does all he that makes one the happening. worst he makes the worst I'm solving a mystery board in the history yes. of movies. <laughs> yes. It's full of evidence and pictures of Gwen for some reason. Also, <laughs> random thoughts. Instead of on sticky notes, on index cards that are then taped. <laughs> uh, like, what, will I lose her too? <sighs> anyway, that that's also one of those things where it's like, I think we're learning more that when Mark Webb makes Spider-Man movies, he shoots a lot and then sort of decides what storylines he could jam in. And the Oxford interview to her in the cab the entire Mary Jane plot was lifted out of that. So there's definitely, that definitely feels chunky because I'm not sure even while they were making the film, they were sure what the like middle of the second act was going to have to be. I, I'm curious just to kind of wrap up our spoiler talk here. If I've seen a lot of complaints that Spider-Man two is all about world building or it's all about setting up for this future franchise that has become a major like marketing point for Sony, you know, they're selling this movie as the beginning of a, a, a f it's fractaling off into lots of movies. Um, <laughs> I didn't really get that impression watching it. There are moments, there are things in the movie that I don't understand. Why is Felicity Jones in this movie as Felicia? You know, that, that seems to be a clear setup for something else. And if you've read the comics, you know, um, when this whole mystery thing gets really distracting is with the parents. We've touched on this a few times. The beginning of this movie, opening the movie on the parents, uh, on Richard Parker um, trying to upload a file on a, on a Who computer. Who says it like that? Uh, I think the kid I... from Life of Pi says it like that. Um, <laughs> I didn't get it. I'm sorry. No problem. Uh, <laughs> but like, it's this movie feels weighed down by Amazing Spider-Man one in a way. That's probably my least favorite part of it. That the mythology from the previous film seems to be drawing it back, as opposed to whatever it's propelling forward. I didn't feel like it was a lot of setup for things to come because of the death of Gwen Stacy. It kind of wipes the board clean in a way. We go back to the Rhino with his suit, and now Spider-Man's back in full force. He'll probably be dealing with the death later. But is 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 that kind of stuff distracting for people in this movie, or am I am I missing something? I don't know. I think we're giving the audience. Uh, see, this is that's the question again. Like, is the audience someone who, like us, has read, a, 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 you know, every piece of little information? I think if you went on opening night to any multiplex, 
and polled the people as they were coming off and asked them if they even knew that a Sinister Six movie was in play, the majority of them wouldn't know Right. That. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. So um, these little teases, like you, we, I kind of harp on the fact that Felicity Jones is playing a girl named Felicia, if only because the black cat's name is Felicia Hardy. But, you know, Joe Public, who just wants to go see the Spider-Man movie, they wouldn't associate what her name is more so than you'd pay attention to, you know, the waitress who Captain America rescued and gets interviewed at the end of Avengers. You know, to them, she's just a superfluous character. So I think I think Webb does a pretty good job of sprinkling in those little nods for the people who want it and need it. But at the same time, it never it didn't feel heavy handed to me of, oh, I need to know who Felicia is, because if I don't, I'm totally lost in this movie. And yet this movie is not for 10 year olds. Can we agree with that? Like it wishes well, it could be just for like crazy action, silly you are, characters. You are no. underestimating 10 year olds. Man. But well, ten, I mean, a 10 year old doesn't want to see Gwen Stacy break her neck. As she I didn't want to see floor. Gwen Stacy die the first time I saw Gwen Stacy die. That's perfect. Hold on. I'm the only one on this podcast, I'm guessing, who brought a 10 year old to oh, the movie. Yeah, you probably are. <laughs> uh, well, have, Matt may have brought a date. Matt, uh, no. Just, I don't think Jordan Hoffman counts. Maybe <laughs> well, maturity-wise. Inner child is 10 years old. Yeah, yeah but other than that, no. Um, I brought my 10-year-old son, who has watched The Amazing Spider-Man and really enjoys it, um, has seen chunks of the Raimi ones, but for him, the, the, the Spider-Man version is Mark Webb's. And he um, didn't care for any of the emotional be- beats and cringed every time Peter and Gwen kissed and was completely unfazed by her death. <laughs> so, oh, to be 10 again. <laughs> yeah, ex- exactly. Um, and I didn't tell him that Gwen was going to die, and I wanted to see how he reacted to it. And uh, yeah, the, the, it didn't have that sort of emotional And now your son is curled it. up in a ball and – oh, no, okay. No, he's, he has kittens in a freezer in our, in our <laughs> basement apparently. Um so, yeah, I mean, to him, he came out of it remembering the big action sequences, and he thinks Electro's amazing, and, uh, you know, Green Goblin was fantastic to him. So, yeah, I mean, that's the 10-year-old's, I don't know if it's the average 10-year-old reaction, but that was, the, that was my son's reaction. Getting back to that question of the, uh, the world building or the setting up stuff, I actually, I, of all the complaints I had with the movie, I didn't find that particularly overbearing uh, in the way that I have in other movies, you know, like Iron Man 2 or mm. even, you know, even like uh, the last Captain America, actually. Like I didn't find um, – I didn't find that the – you know, there's like one scene at the end and there are certainly some hints in there. But I think I feel like the problems are much more actually kind of the reverse. Instead of like slowly teasing things out, my problems were all that they – I really felt like the movie was in a rush, maybe to get to these other movies, perhaps. But, uh, you know, like just like flying through this Harry Osborne story, uh, uh, you know, at, where where I think that, you know, it probably would have been a lot more satisfying uh, over the course of maybe two movies or something like that. And the same way that, you know, the the death of Gwen Stacy felt more uh, impactful because we had met that character over the course of a film. The, the same could be said, I think, about uh, you know Harry Osborn. Um, so I, I didn't really think that there was a ton of it. Certainly, there's uh, drips and drabs, but it's pretty. I thought it was pretty inobtrusive. You know, the stuff with Felicia Hardy. Like again, if you ne- if you don't know who that character is, it really is not. They don't dwell on it. Like I said, the the bigger problems are are in rushing through this story. And, you know, like having J. Jonah Jameson as a character who exists only via email, you know, stuff like that, I think, is, <laughs> is a lot bigger of a, of a problem. I think that stuff's funny. I just, I just found that stuff to be funny. 
the whole they're, they're literally a huge plot point hinges on Peter Parker taking pictures of Spider-Man and them being friends or at least people thinking they're friends which then Harry Osborn uses to you know say I need you to bring me Spider-Man so I can get his blood and all yada 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 <laughs> I'm dying I'm, I'm dying in 20 to 40 years I will be dead <laughs> Uh, but but literally, the, we never see him take a single picture in the entire movie, and we never see him go to the Daily Bugle, and you know, like it's just it's so bizarre and random to hinge this huge part of the movie on something we never see the main character do, or and a place he never actually visits. It's almost like Colm Fior, who plays uh, Osborne's Norman Osborne's assistant guy, would make a better villain in this movie, perhaps than. Harry Osborn, like, being kind of thrust into it as a major, as the son of a major character, as a friend of everyone else. Uh, it doesn't make as much sense. And yet, it's still broadly stroked, and I ate it up. I don't know why. I, I totally understand everything you're saying, Matt. Uh, I don't know why I can forgive this one as much as, uh, uh, whereas other people cannot. Well, I have a legit question, and, and but you guys might be wrapping it up. I mean, we're all sort of nitpicking it as people who pay uber close attention to the details. Do you guys just think it's going to be entertaining for mainstream audiences? That's exactly well, how I was going to address this whole thing. I was going to say that. Oh, I, I, I would oh, just want to throw one thing in and then yeah, take it away. Uh, I brought my girlfriend who had not seen Amazing Spider-Man 1 to see this movie. So she has no idea what's going on. And she loved it. She had a ball. So... There, people, newbies can enjoy this movie, I think. Uh, all the emotional beats play, the action's big enough, it's fun. Uh, you don't have to be a hardcore spider-file to enjoy it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I want to echo those sentiments, and I think that while we're still in the spoilers section, that, like, the greatest thing that I realized about this movie after watching it is that Harry injects himself with spider venom so when we thought they were talking about the character venom they were actually talking about actual venom and we worked ourselves into a tizzy for like months so that's, <laughs> that's the downside we? No. I don't know if we is the problem yeah, uh, this is the first I'm hearing about it but okay <laughs> Other, we all did Bit large. <laughs> what I'm saying is that the opposite of the people that could just sit down and enjoy it, obviously, we'll find our own things to nitpick and our own things to be worried about. And I think a lot of the general public is going to, you know, if they could accept Transformers 2, this one's probably going to be no problem. So just to wrap up, I had a lot of fun with this movie. It's slick. It's silly, which I am... You know, I, uh, people who listen to this podcast know that I'm getting all hung up about movies being too realistic at times, and that some movies just need to go off the deep end. And I think this movie does in a in a positive way. But I turn it to you guys as we wrap up. Just like one or two lines here. You're all Spider-Man fans. This is a universe you want to continue seeing. Uh, is it is it something that satisfied? Uh, do you want more of this? Because you're getting more of this. And I feel like Sean, you should start because we already know what you're going to say. Oh, um, yeah, you know, I do, but I also recognize that that it's really hard to maintain positive momentum in any of these franchises. And so I'm thrilled that we've had two films that I consider to be a lot of fun and really in tune with what I like from Spider-Man, which is the humor and the, um, the unexpected emotional turns. But I would not be surprised in the least if the third one comes out and, and it's horrendous because that's just kind of what happens. But for now, I'm really enjoying it. Matt Singer. Uh, uh, um, I, uh, <laughs> you have to remain I, hopeful. 
I liked this one more than I liked the first Amazing Spider-Man. So I guess that's progress. And like, you know, uh, a, a, a kind of mediocre Spider-Man movie is still better as a Spider-Man fan than uh, some other things. I just, like I said, I, I you know, like I, I feel like they've got between Peter and Gwen, which is something they're going to lose in the third one. So they're already at a little bit of a disadvantage. I would just hope that, um, you know, they're just a little more attention paid to the, to the script. Uh, will like regular people like it? Yeah, probably. I mean, like I, I you know, I, I, I think the, the, the action delivers, you know, on that level alone, if that's what you want to see, you know, you're going to be, I think you're probably going to be satisfied, but you know, it could, it would be nice if the movie really, you know, uh, was a, a little more solid all the way through. That wouldn't be such a bad thing. I would enjoy <laughs> that. Uh, it's, you know, like, uh, it's not so bad for the movie to strive to be more than, well, the action scenes were, were pretty good. So, yeah, I, I would say, in answer to your question, yes, but, I guess. Yes, probably it'll be enjoyed, but it could probably be enjoyed more. I don't think people are going to love it, per se. Dave, take us out. You've been spending, like, your entire life preparing for this movie. So <laughs> this is, like, a, a pretty big deal. Yeah, I mean, and I'm going to say I don't Wasn't think... Wasn't it worth it? It wasn't the best movie, but it was by far my favorite of the five Spider-Man films because all you need to do, like I learned when I walked out of Captain America 2 thinking, what a good movie, why aren't I like jumping up and down for joy? When I tie myself to a character, like I've tied myself to Spider-Man, as long as you're not betraying that character, you could put him through a lot of crap because I've seen him go through a lot of crap and I'm still around, so... I would love to see them do more because they can't hurt me if they've shown me a quipping Spider-Man that is acrobatic in the air while he's web-swilling. Amazing Spider-Man 3, Madam Web. Oh, good lord. That's too early. Too early to bring her in. <laughs> Stilt man. Yes. Nothing else comes out. Did anyone else see Walk of Shame by any chance? No. I haven't screened it. Really? Well, there's a reason. I have seen it, and it's awful. So there you go. Oh, Get that, that out of the way. Good, actually. Poor Elizabeth Banks. Uh, yeah, I don't understand what her problem... I mean, she's very funny, um, but that movie is just trying to be hangover with a feminist twist, which actually, the end of the movie um, chastises people who shame women for sleeping around or having one night stands and i really appreciate it on that level um but unfortunately the first 90 minutes are awful i'm going to turn our lightning round question for this week which was what movie in honor of walk of shame in fact uh what movie do your friends give you shit for liking and i'm going to turn that to our guests uh matt singer is there a movie that people your close friends give you shit about liking I, I'm I'm trying to think of one, but I guess all of them is probably the answer. <laughs> all of them? Most of them, anyway. I don't know. I mean, I'm the guy who's written a million pieces about Arnold Schwarzenegger, so take your pick, I guess. Uh, the, the terrible Arnold Schwarzenegger movies from the late 90s that everyone hates that I like, I guess any of those... Which ones are those? Like, which one is the most hated uh, if you had to the, guess? That's the End of Days, The yes. Sixth Day, Collateral yes. Damage, Terminator uh -huh. 3. 
<laughs> all of those movies. Any of those. Let's do End of Days because Gabriel Byrne kind of got shafted in that movie. I think. You're a choir boy. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold? Um, Sean, what, what is your pick here? What movie do you like that people give you shit for? What's this? It's a weird. I have two weird ones. Uh, my, I always got shit from people for for loving Titanic, like wholeheartedly loving Titanic. Like oh. I think I saw it like nine times in the theater. You are not and alone. Going, Many a, a, a number of our listeners also picked Titanic. But when I went back and like kept reseeing it, reseeing it, everybody was like, "You're crazy. Why do you keep going into this movie as often as you did?" And I mean, it's but it's it stood the test of time, obviously. But I, I used to get the most shit from that. Also, the complete Lethal Weapon series, including Part Four, which I will defend. Um, yes. Can you just one line defend <laughs> yeah, yeah, that for a second? For, you're gonna get shit from me in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Why that? Why Part Four? So bad. Um, because uh, they had a great villain. They had a formidable villain. And the last fight on the pier uh, was some serious shit. Those people got really fucked up in that movie. They did get really fucked up in that movie. Uh, Dave, do you have an answer here? I do. I'm going to choose uh, listener Disco Shark underscore. that said Speed Racer because my friends are awful people. And I maintain that Speed Racer is a modern classic for high people. Go check just, it out. Just for high people? No, it's a modern classic, comma, for high people. That was the beginning of the end for the uh, Wachowskis. Well, I think it was the end of the Wachowski brothers and is now <laughs> Quite the literally. Wachowski Matrix version 2.0, I think, that's going to happen. Yes, that is true. And my answer is going to be, oh, I wanted to pick Duncan House, who said Mirror Mirror, but I'm going to go with something even zanier. Oh, I lost my answer. I actually don't know who said this. Oh, yes, at Brian R. Harris, who said Newsies, and then in all caps, I am not ashamed. I don't know why you would be. Newsies is a fabulous movie, isn't it? Seize the day. Well, king of New York. King of New York, Patches. King and I'm the king of New York. Santa <laughs> Fe. I know all the songs, um, and I get a lot of shit from people. So that about wraps things up for this episode of Fighting in the War Room. Thanks, people, for listening. Um, guests, why don't we tell people where they can find you on the internet? Matt Singer, how do people find you? Uh, I'm a news editor for The Dissolve. You're the a newsies editor. No, no. Oh. Without the E's. Sorry. Just news. That's okay. And uh, I'm the co-host of Film Spotting SVU, which you can find on iTunes or at filmspottingsvu.com. And my Twitter account is at Matt Singer. Sean? Uh, I am the movie content director for cinemablend.com. Uh, I write for Fandango, uh, primarily their family room. And you can find me on Twitter at Sean underscore O'Connell, O-C-O-N-N-E-L-L. Sean is S-E-A-N. Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Dave? Oh, I'm Dave with a 7. Spell that D-A-7-E. The 7 replaces the V, but it's still pronounced Dave. That's my Twitter <laughs> handle. Find me there. It's been a while since you've given that full explanation. Well, this week on Tuesday's episode, it turns out people don't know how to necessarily pronounce it. So. The 70. There you uh, go. <laughs> <laughs> and I am Matt Patches. I am on the internet writing all over the place, trying to put everything on mattpatches.com, and I'm on Twitter at Mr. Patches. And um, by the time that you hear this, Dave and I are going to be off to Katie Rich's wedding. So wish her well, because next week she'll be a married lady. Uh, and that's everything for this week. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Ask me out for